Jonathan, good morning. And uh, it's really good to be back at Grace Fellowship again and to worship with you today. Let me invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Mark chapter 12. And while you're doing that, I just want to commend you um, as a congregation and commend your elders. Uh, Grace Fellowship has a reputation uh, that this church takes expository preaching seriously. And I want to commend you for that. If you're not sure what expository preaching is, uh, it is when the text of the passage or the point of the passage becomes the point of the sermon. That's expository preaching. Um, John Stott, who uh, has gone on to be with the Lord but pastored in London many, many years, said that to expound the scripture is to, to bring out of the text what is in there and then to expose it to view. He said that the expositor opens what is closed and makes plain what is obscure and unravels what is knotted and unfolds what is tightly packed. So that's the task before us today as we come to this passage in Mark chapter 12. And the reasons expository preaching is so important is because uh, many times preachers are tempted to dwell on their favorite topics or their pet peeves. <laughs> but expository preaching, especially consecutive expository preaching, the way it's done here at Grace, um, kind of pushes you and forces you to engage the whole counsel of God. It also, as a church member, shows you practical Bible study skills. So as you're coming and hearing how the pastor uh, unfolds this text, you're learning tools that will help you in your own personal Bible study. It, it just um, it, it gives you an understanding of what this, what this passage means. How do you know if a preacher is preaching expositionally or not? Well, one way is, do you find yourself having to look down at the text anytime during the sermon? Some preachers will read a text and then depart therefrom in the rest of their sermon. But an expositor, you're, you're having to continually uh, engage in and move in and out of and with the, the text. And so that's one of the hints that you can tell whether you're listening to uh, an expositional preacher uh, or not. Another is when you leave, do you feel like you've really engaged the text? Do you feel like you have a better understanding of what this passage says than you did when you came in? And so those are marks of expository preaching, and those are marks of the preaching ministry here at Grace Fellowship. So I, I want to commend you for that. All right, Mark chapter 12. Have you found it? If you're using the Pew Bible, I looked it up. It's page 849. And here's what I'd like to do today, if you, if you would let me and if the clock will allow. I'd like to start here in Mark. Then I would like to go to Psalm 110 that Pastor Jesse read for us. And then I'd like to go to Genesis. And then I'd like to go to Hebrews. And then I'd like to come back and land in Mark. All right? So you're going to have to listen fast, okay? So that's our plan, our game plan today. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35, where Pastor Tim has left off in this, in this series on Mark's gospel. Verse 35 says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, once again, we open your word with the desire that we would see Jesus. And so we ask the Holy Spirit of God that inspired these passages that we'll look at today to be our teacher who would guide us into truth and guard us from error and accomplish in each of our hearts that for which you send out your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so it's Tuesday. Well, actually, it's Sunday, but I mean, in this passage, it's Tuesday, okay? I just want you to know I knew that it was Sunday, but in this passage, it's Tuesday. Why is that significant? It's significant because we are in the last week of Jesus' life on earth before the cross. So two days earlier, on that Sunday, was Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. The day before, Monday... Jesus goes into the court of the Gentiles in the temple and turns over the tables and chases out the money changers from the temple. Says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And now we are here on Tuesday, and he has come back into that very same court of the Gentiles there in the temple complex. And he is teaching, and he is answering their questions. It's Tuesday. In just three days... He will have been betrayed, arrested, put on trial, and carried to the cross where he will pay for the sins of the world. So this is a significant time. You kind of know where we are now in the context of Mark's gospel, in the context of of Christ's life. And so um, this Tuesday, this particular Tuesday, as, as you've been studying here at Grace in the, in the passages before... Jesus is in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, and he's just getting hammered with questions. Not questions from folks that are honest, sincere inquirers, but questions from folks that are trying to embarrass him, trip him up, trap him, incriminate him, so that they can put him away permanently. Their goal is to discredit him as a teacher and a religious leader and so they have come with questions designed to try to do that how can we get him is their motive and he answers deftly and adeptly every one of their questions to the point that chapter 12 verse 34 the verse right before what we read says that they just got to where they didn't ask any more questions (laughs) and when that point came jesus kind of turned the tables on them And now he begins to ask them questions. He asked them two questions in this passage that we just read. He asked them kind of the setup question, and then he zeroed in on the question of what he was was getting at. So the first question, the setup question, is in verse 35 when he says, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And that is what the scribes said. The scribes said that the Messiah that was to come would be 
from the lineage of David. He would be a son of David. That's the clear teaching of the Old Testament. They were right to tell people that the Christ would be a son of David. And so there's nothing wrong with what they were saying. That's exactly the case. The Christ, or it could be translated the anointed one. We think of it sometimes as the Messiah. Uh, is, uh, and by the way, that speaks of all of the offices of Christ. Uh, as the anointed one, he is anointed as our prophet. He is anointed as our priest. He is anointed as our king in the Old Testament. All three of those offices were uh, ordained or commenced or inaugurated with the anointing of oil, ceremony of the anointing of oil. So the anointed one was the prophet. The anointed one was the priest. The anointed one was the king. Jesus, as the anointed one, is our prophet and priest and king. The offices of Christ make him, fittingly, the anointed one. And so this anointed one would be a son of David. So he's saying, how can, how can the scribes teach this? And then he answers his own question. Look in verse 36. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He answers his own question. By the way, let me just, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a rabbit that just ran across the front of the room. Let me just chase that rabbit for a minute, okay? Do you notice here Jesus' high view of the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scripture? Look at what it says. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. What's he saying? He's saying, I understand that there is a dual authorship to this psalm and to all the psalms and to the Old Testament, to the scriptures. That there is a divine author and that there is a human author. He is embracing the inspiration of the scripture. And could I just say that if Jesus Christ is to be our Lord, his view of anything ought to be our view. His view of the church, his view of creation, his view of marriage and divorce, his view of uh, the Psalms, his view of the Messiah, his view of the scriptures should be our view. And so uh, he, he holds the scriptures in high regard as the word of God. And then he asks a second question in verse 37. Do you see it? David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? That's his second question. So as, as uh, Pastor Jesse pointed out, he's quoting from Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is a passage that they would be familiar with. Now remember, this is in the court of the Gentiles. There is, according to, to verse 37, a great throng there listening to him. That throng includes the Herodians and the Pharisees who were questioning him in chapter 11. The, the, uh, the Sadducees who were questioning in chapter 12. The scribes who were also questioning him in chapter 12. So you've got all this group. The leaders and the people are there listening to him. And uh, they all knew, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, knew Psalm 110. So let me invite you to take a minute and let's go to Psalm 10. And let's look at this verse that Jesus quotes here. In its context. So Psalm 110. Again I looked it up in your pew Bible. It's 509. If you're using that. While you're turning there. Let me just, let me just tell you why this is such a significant psalm. Why it would be so familiar to them. This is the greatest. Of all of the messianic psalms. Now let me try to justify that claim. Okay. In many. And when I say messianic psalms. I'm talking about. Psalms that address the coming Messiah. 
to talk about what he's like, what he'll do, uh, when he'll come, all of those kind of things. Most of the Messianic Psalms have both a near and a far fulfillment. Many times there is a near fulfillment in that the psalm is talking about King David or is talking about the the nation of Israel. But with the Messianic psalm, what what makes it Messianic is it's also talking about the coming Messiah. And for most of these Messianic psalms, there is both a near fulfillment or application and a far fulfillment or application. But not so with Psalm 110. It is exclusively, entirely, totally focused on the coming of the Messiah. There's no near fulfillment. It is focused on the coming Messiah and and that alone. And they knew that. These scribes would know that. These Sadducees, these Pharisees, they would would know that. Um, You know, there there are other uh, psalms like Psalm 2, when it says the kings of the earth have gathered together against uh, the Lord and against his anointed one. That's talking about enemies of David. And it's also talking about enemies of the Messiah. Or Psalm 22 that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a lament of David, but is also, we recognize, as words of Jesus the Messiah from the cross. And so many times a psalm would have this near immediate application and this far distant application related to the Messiah. Not so with, with Psalm 110. And so he quotes verse 1. Back in Mark 12, he quotes verse 1. Here we are in Psalm 110, and I'm not there yet, so let me get there as well. By the way, Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other verse in the Old Testament. Did you realize that? This verse that Jesus quotes... The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other verse in the Old Testament. And so we notice in the subheading that it says a psalm of David, or some of your Bibles say a Davidic psalm. That's significant to the point that Jesus is trying to make in the court of the Gentiles uh, on this Tuesday before the cross. It's important that he's quoting a psalm of David. Why is that important? Because if Psalm 10 was written by somebody that worked for David, a courtier that lived in his palace, then basically what verse 1 of Psalm 110 would be saying is, the Lord says to David. But that's not what, that's not what that means because this is not a psalm written by one of David's employees or courtiers. It's written by David himself. And so when he says, the Lord says to my Lord, he's not saying God says to David. He's saying God says to my Lord, or actually he's saying God says to God. It's amazing. Do you know what's happening here? David is kind of pulling back the curtains and giving us a glimpse of a conversation that took place in heaven between God the Father and God the Son. There's no way we would know this had David not, under the inspiration of the Scripture, given us this passage that, that shows us this. This is an amazing uh, peek behind the curtain, if you will. And he says, the Lord says to my Lord, most of your Bibles will have that first Lord in all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Why do they do that? Well, the translators and many times the publishers of our English Bibles We'll, we'll use that as a way to signify this particular name for God is the name Yahweh. 
or the name Jehovah. It is the sacred name of God when Moses said, all right, you want me to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go and I'm going to take them to a promised land and we're not going to be slaves in Egypt. And I got to tell that to Pharaoh and I got to tell that to all the people of Israel. And they're going to say, well, who are you and who sent you? Who am I supposed to say who sent me? And he said, you tell them I am sent you. That I am is the, is the tetragrammaton. It is the covenant name the sacred holy name of God. And so this all capital L-O-R-D speaks of Yahweh. Yahweh is God's sacred holy name. And then he says, the Lord says to my Lord, and that second Lord is not all capital, is it? It begins with a capital L, but then the rest of the letters are lowercase. There's a distinction here that's being made that you need to understand as a, stu- a student of your of your Bible. And so what is this second Lord that's not all caps? What does it mean? Well, it is the word that, that's often translated Adonai. It is God's sacred title. It means the sovereign one. Literally it means the sovereign one. And so you have Yahweh, all capitals. You have Adonai, which is um, the sovereign one. And, and we've seen this before in Psalms. In Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Literally could be, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So it's very clear, and Jesus understood this, and Jesus knew who his audience was, very clear that Psalm 110, verse 1, God is speaking to God. And we get a glimpse in this heavenly conversation among members of the Godhead that that God is speaking to David's Lord, the Sovereign One. And all of these Herodians, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes uh, that had been trying to trick and trap Jesus with their questions to embarrass him, they understood the distinction between Yahweh and Adonai. They were very familiar with Psalm 110, this supreme text of messianic expectancy. And so when Jesus quoted verse 1, they knew the context of this entire psalm. And that's important. We won't read it again because Jesse already read it to us, but let me give you an outline of this psalm. You have, you have two statements from God, and then each of those is followed by an explanation. So a statement from God and an explanation. A statement from God and an explanation. That's Psalm 110, a basic outline. What is that first statement from God? It's in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The right-hand seat is the seat of highest authority. In fact, for it to be in heaven, it would be a place that is worthy of our worship. Okay? Sit at the highest seat of authority. Sit at the seat that, that demands others show worship to you. You know what we're really seeing here in Psalm 110? We are seeing the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate a lot of events in Christ's life, don't we? We celebrate his birth at Christmas. We celebrate his death on Good Friday or observe his death on Good Friday. We celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Uh, We celebrate Pentecost and and that time of ascension. But, But one aspect that often escapes us is when he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high, his coronation. And this psalm shows us that coronation. Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he gives the explanation in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He gives a scepter to Jesus who sits at the right hand of, of heaven's throne. Puts a scepter in Jesus' hand. Uh, the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. And to the Son, that is Jesus the Son. To the Son he says, your throne O God. Did you catch that? To the Son, Jesus. He says, your throne O God. The equivalent Jesus the Son is the same as the, the name God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness, we'll come back to that in a minute. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is coronated and in his plan, in his hand is placed a, a royal scepter of righteousness with which he will rule. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. God's people are ready to, to give themselves for the king, to spend themselves in service to the king. Whether that means to go into battle or whether that means to serve him in his court, they are available. They are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is their reasonable service of worship. And then we come to the second oracle or the second declaration of God in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So in verse 1, the Lord says, in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Okay, who is Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is only mentioned three times in the Bible. He's mentioned in Genesis 14. He's mentioned here in Psalm 110. And he's mentioned in the New Testament in uh, a passage that spans Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. So who is this, this Melchizedek? He is, admittedly, I'll tell you, he is kind of a mysterious figure. Okay? But let me introduce him to you by going to where he's introduced to us in Scripture in Genesis chapter 14. So take your Bibles, if you will. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. I looked it up. It's on page 10 in your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 14. Let me give you the context of what's happening here. You've got uh, uh, an alliance of kings that are going to battle against another alliance of kings. So you've got five kings and all of their people going against four kings and all of their people. Okay, And when I say kings, I say kings because the Bible uses the word kings. It's not what we might think. It's really like a, a, the mayor of a village. <laughs> okay. So these, these village mayors, if you will, these tribal leaders get together. Not kings like we would think of the king of England or the, you know, it's not a huge empire. It's these small regional leaders that are clustered together in alliances and five of them are going to go against four of them. So let's begin reading in, in uh, verse 8 for one reason to skip a lot of these names I can't pronounce. But secondly, to kind of save some time. In, in verse 8, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. When Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, 
Amphrael, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. That's what I was really getting at, okay? Four kings against five. You, you're not going to remember the names, and you don't really care right now about the names, and we're not going to focus on the names, but it's four against five, okay? Verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. What is that? Well, it's, it, it, some of your Bibles say tar pits. You've got this valley, and it's just full of tar pits, okay? It's like wall-to-wall tar pits. See, walled wall carpets, walled wall tarp. Okay, so it's full of, it's fully tarp. And as they, as they do battle and as they try to flee from one another, some of them fall in the pit and get stuck. And some of them slog through and are able to escape. But um, look at uh, verse, uh, let's look at verse um, 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother. Abram is, is who we would later know as Abraham. Uh, so this is, uh, Lot is his nephew. And uh, who, he was dwelling in Sodom at the time. So they took him and everybody else from Sodom, took all their possessions, and they took them away. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and uh, Anair, uh, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsman, that is his nephew, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So it wasn't that Abram had his own army, but he did have all these shepherds that worked for him and tenders of the flock, and they had to be trained in self-defense and defense of the flock. So they were, they were able to fight. So 318 of them follow Abram, and then his other colleagues here have their guys, and so they all go to, to war. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. And after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat, that is the king's valley. Now stop. Just kind of skip over these next few verses. We'll come back to them. Skip over them and go to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but you take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Okay, so the story makes perfect sense. If you skip over the verses we skipped over, the story makes perfect sense. Okay, so we don't need those verses to understand the story of what happened. Abraham and his boys went after him. Uh, they got tar all over their legs, and, and so they were easy to catch. They caught them. They got Lot. They got all Lot's stuff. They got all the Sodomites that had left. They got all the people uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the losing team. They recaptured, or re, or they rescued them and, and brought them back. And they bring them back to the king of Sodom, and the Sodom says, here, let me, let me give you uh, all the stuff. You just give me the people. And Abraham says, no, 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 no. I don't want, I don't want your stuff. Why did he say that? Well, he said that because the king of Sodom was a polytheistic pagan king, and Abraham didn't want everybody saying, hey, this pagan is what made me rich, not the Lord God, but this pagan made me rich. So you know what? Keep your stuff. I don't want your stuff. Just give my guys their fair share, and, and we'll, call it, we'll call it good, okay? So, great story, great battle story, great war story in the Old Testament. But in the middle of this, 
is this passage about Melchizedek. So let's jump in there. Verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, uh, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So who is this Melchizedek? What do we know about him? Well, his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Remember when Jesus sat down at the throne, he was given a scepter. And the writer of Hebrews said that was a scepter of righteousness. This Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem. What does that mean? Well, it could be translated, he is the king of Shalom. He is the king of peace. And many Bible scholars think that this Salem, where Melchizedek was king, would later become Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so uh, he was the, the king of Salem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, and he is a king and a priest. He's the king of Salem, and he is a priest of the God Most High. A king and a priest. That's significant. Why is that significant? Because by the time, this is Genesis, by the time we get to Exodus and we get to Moses and the law is laid down, a person cannot serve as king and priest. Those roles are separated by the Mosaic law. Kings were going to come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Priests were going to come from the tribe of Levi. In fact, there was an episode in 1 Samuel where King Saul, the king of Israel, tried to offer some sacrifices as though he were a priest, and that's what cooked his goose. It was that episode that God said, I'm taking the throne away from you, and I'm giving it to another, and it would be given to David. Because Saul was trying to be both king and priest. In Abraham's time... That was allowed. But by Moses' time, with the Mosaic Law, those roles had to be separated. A priest could not be a king, and a king could not be a priest. And so uh, this Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. That's the Hebrew name El Elyon, uh, the Most High God. Some have suggested that this episode in Genesis 14 is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. I don't believe that, and I'll show you why in just a minute. But um, uh, nonetheless, it is, it is not what we call a Christophany or a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So Abraham receives a blessing from him. Abraham receives a meal from him. Abraham takes nothing from the king of Sodom. Uh, Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Interesting guy, this Melchizedek. Do you, do you remember in, in Genesis how Genesis seems to be a book that that takes genealogy is very important. You read in Genesis 5, uh, so-and-so fathered so-and-so and lived so many years and then died, and so-and-so followed so-and-so. It's just these long lists of genealogies. Genesis 5, Genesis 10, again in Genesis 11. These long lists of genealogies. But there is no genealogy for, that includes Melchizedek. We don't know who his father was. We don't know who his mother was. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We don't know much about him, except he just kind of shows up in these three verses in Genesis 14, and then he disappears. We don't hear from him again. He's not mentioned again until David mentions him in Psalm 110 that we read just a few moments ago. So David, around the year 1000 B.C., 
is reading the scroll, reading Genesis, reading what will, for us would be Genesis 14. And as he sits on, uh, as king of Jerusalem, he is reading about a king of Salem named Melchizedek, who, who reigned there about a thousand years before David. So he's reading, reading about what kind of could be considered his predecessor, I guess. And then between Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and David in Psalm 110, what happened? Well, a lot of things happened, but one of the things that happened is Moses came. And Moses came bringing the law of God. And the law separates these roles, king and priest, um, and, and so makes them, uh, makes them separate. And David is reading about this king who was a king priest. David can't be a king priest. The Mosaic law forbids him from being a king and a priest. So he's just a king. And he's reading about a guy that was both king and priest. But then in Psalm 110, David writes this. There's a guy coming. There's a guy coming who's going to be a king and a priest. Even though the Mosaic law, the Levitical priesthood... Is it, those guys are forbidden from being both priest and king. There's coming a guy who is going to be a king and a priest. And then we don't read anything about Melchizedek again in the Old Testament. We don't read anything about him until we come to the book of Hebrews. So real quick, we got to go to the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. He begins talking about Melchizedek in chapter 5 and chapter 6, but chapter 7 is such a great commentary on Psalm 110 that that's where I want us to look real quickly. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, that is the king of peace, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth, gave him a tithe, that is, a tenth part of everything, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Remember I told you his name means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. Okay? So, um, and he, he says in verse 3, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but, look at this, resembling... The Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He resembles the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. This was not a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. But he does give a type or a picture of Christ. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth. How great Melchizedek is. Verse 5. Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers. Though these are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent, this, this Melchizedek, from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Okay? And then um, he says in verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal man, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So we don't have time to unpack that, but look at verse 11. Verse 11 asks a question. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek 
rather than one named after the order of Aaron. What's he asking here? He's saying, why do we need another priest to come? We already have priests. We have the Levites. We have the Levitical priesthood. We don't need another kind of priest. Uh, Why do we need a Melchizedek kind of priest when we already have the Levitical kind of priest? And the answer is because the, the Levites just couldn't do it. The Levites were not adequate. The, the, the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament sacrificial system is not enough to get you to God into a right relationship with God. We need for another kind of priest to come. And so verse 12, when there's a change in the priesthood from, Levite, from the Levites to Melchizedek, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of, uh, so let me, let me just, when we think of the Old Testament law, we think of the moral law of God, the civil law of God, the ceremonial law of God, that's being the, the law of God. The moral law of God, we usually summarize that by the Ten Commandments. The civil law of God were those rules that were meant to govern ancient Israel. The ceremonial laws were those sacrifices and things. So when we think of the law of God, we think of the moral law as the the thing that really lasts, right? The others have kind of been jettisoned. We don't really keep those sacrifices. We don't observe those civil laws anymore. But uh, we embrace the the moral law of God. We're bound by the the moral law of God. But, But really the Old Testament legal system was all of that bound together and set upon the priesthood. It all rested. The entire legal system was built upon the priesthood. We, we get the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. What happens in 21? What happens in Exodus 22, 23, and on and on? Well, after you're given the Ten Commandments, you're told how to build a tabernacle, how to build an ephod, how to have a sacrifice, how to offer the sacrifice, what materials to use in the tabernacle, when to offer the... Everything is built on the priesthood. The entire law of God is built on the priesthood. It's designed to show... That there is no approach to God apart from the priestly sacrifices. So if you're going to change from Levi to Melchizedek, you've got to, the whole legal system changes. Now look at verse 13. We're in Hebrews chapter 7. Look at verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe for which no one has ever served at the altar. In other words, Melchizedek is not from the tribe of Levi. Neither is Jesus. He's not from the tribe of Levi. Verse 14. It's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, the tribe of Judah, and connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Priests don't come from Judah. Kings come from Judah. Priests come from Levi. Now here's a new system, a new priestly system, that is gonna, that is gonna change all that. And then uh, look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Jesus wasn't a Levite. But by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's quoting Psalm 110 again. Do you see that? Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This sacrificial system, this Old Testament priesthood is never going to pay the penalty for sins. It only points to a sacrifice that will be once for all for sins. Verse 20, it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Levi's didn't have an oath that made them priests, but Melchizedek was made that by an oath. Jesus was made a priest by an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
you are a priest forever. Again, quoting Psalm 110. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They would serve a little while, but then they would die. We'd have to have another priest. Then he would die. They'd have to have another priest. Then he would die. And, and so they just kept replacing these guys because the priests kept dying. Verse um, 24, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. The Old Testament system couldn't do that. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. The other priest didn't. He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy. The Old Testament say, uh, priests were not holy. Innocent. They were not innocent. Unstained. They were not. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness and high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This was predicted in Psalm 110. A king that would, that would be promised to sit on the throne of David forever and ever. And a priest that would offer a sacrifice once for all. And they come together. This, this promised king, this promised priest come together in the person of a new priest, a new king, a priest king. David's Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Righteousness, the Prince of Peace. Just like Melchizedek was, this new priest king is David's Lord. He is the Lord Jesus himself. Now with that in mind, go back and we'll finish where we started at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, it's Tuesday in the court of the Gentiles. He's been questioned and questioned and questioned. And now he asks them this question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies or put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Jesus Christ is David's Lord. He is the son of David in his humanity. He is the Lord of David in his deity. He is David's Lord who in three more days is going to go to the cross and offer the ultimate and final sacrifice for our sin as our priest. And in three days after that, he'll be resurrected in power and glory. He'll ascend to the Father not long after that. And then he will take his seat at the right hand of the Most High God. And into his hand will be put a scepter which he holds today as the King of kings and Lord of lords. David's Lord will be coronated on heaven's throne and given a scepter for his rule. And his enemies will be made his footstool. That's what Jesus is trying to show these scribes and Herodians and Pharisees and Sadducees in the court of the Gentiles on this Tuesday before the cross. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a, of a servant. Watch this. Being born in the likeness of men. That is, he is David's son. 
born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He is David's Lord. He is David's son. And he is David's Lord. And God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is our King. He is our priest. He is David's Lord. He is our Lord. And this should make us worship him. I want to bring him to you today. And show him, as I prayed at the beginning of this sermon, Lord, we would see Jesus, our King. Our priest, our priest king, David's Lord, our Lord. And that we would rejoice in his kingly priesthood and his priestly kingship. And Mark says in Mark chapter 12 that the great throng heard him gladly. May we hear him gladly today as well. Let's pray together. Our precious Savior. We thank you that you have come to be our priest in a new order. Not something that just pointed to or promised salvation, but a new order that actually accomplished in a once-for-all sacrifice the penalty for our sins. Thank you that you've come to be our king. We love you and we worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen.